Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Regular listeners know that I'm a big fan of mountain biking at night and having a reliable bright light is crucial. Glowworm is a mountain bike light brand founded almost a decade ago by two mountain bikers in New Zealand. And today the company offers some of the most customizable, highest quality bike lights on the market. Glowworm's complete line of lights start at 1,200 lumens and range up to a blinding 3,400 lumens, all at reasonable prices. There are a few things Glowworm does differently that makes their lights unique and highly customizable. The optics can be swapped at home depending on the types of trails you ride, and their lights use standard GoPro-style and quarter-turn mounts. Many of the lights work with a bar-mounted remote, which can be used to control one or more lights at once. Right now, Glowworm is offering 20% off all light systems on their website with the coupon code SINGLETRACKS19. Go to glowwormlights.co.nz, that's G-L-O-W-O-R-M-L-I-T-E-S dot co dot N-Z, or click the link in the show notes to take advantage of this offer. The next time you're shopping for mountain bike gear, check out singletracks.com slash deals. Each week, we share our favorite product picks and exclusive coupon codes from our partners. You can also use the page to search for whatever you're buying, from complete mountain bikes to brake sets and tire sealant. That's singletracks.com slash deals. And to get our weekly picks delivered to your inbox, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Links to the newsletter and deals page are in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Chris Ball. Chris is the managing director of the Enduro World Series. He's worked in the cycling industry for more than a decade as a coach, photographer, writer, and event coordinator. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. So how did you first get into mountain biking? I guess like most other people, really, it wasn't a planned foray into mountain biking i was i was pretty young i was at school a good local bike shop in town had opened up it was the early 90s early to mid 90s and mountain biking here in scotland was kind of this new thing that was sort of happening on the fringes of outdoor sport and seemed exciting and off we went yeah so you worked in did you work in the bike shop or were you were you uh racing at that time or how were you participating yeah i mean initially Initially, it was just riding, really, and then, uh, and, uh, you know, sort of high school. And then after leaving school, I, yeah, worked in a bike shop for a number of years and raced, competed, and used a sort of uh, staff discount to afford the bits and pieces that I wanted. To, like, I think a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of us did and dirtbagged around for a while, um, funded as much racing as I could, um, and then went to university once um, I was able to kind of afford, afford it, really. Yeah. What kind of racing were you doing? It was all downhill. And at the time, it was all, you had a choice. At the time, it was very binary, cross-country or downhill. That was that. Mm-hmm. And although I used to ride quite a lot, the the physical component wasn't maybe what I was attracted to so much. So downhill it was. Yeah. Well, now we have more choices, uh, including Enduro, which we're going to talk a lot about. So what drove you and the other founders to create the Enduro World Series back in 2012? 
it, it kind of started way earlier than that, really. So I'd been uh, the off-road sports coordinator at the UCI for, for five years at that point, working in the Downhill World Cup. And one of the main things that were was, was sort of being ushered in at that time was live coverage for, for all of mountain bike racing, but for downhill especially. And the, the, the need and the understood need in the office to make downhill more televisual, make it more exciting, and cross-country was going in the mm-hmm. same vein. The guys working in the cross-country world were, were from a cyclocross background and understood the need to uh, make things better for the on-site spectator and for the sort of television product, for want of a better word. So you saw the Olympics, you know, go from Atlanta, where it was this big rangy course in the, in the mid-90s, right down to London, where it was just over five kilometres a lap and no trees. And, you know, downhill was, was, was needing to go in the same way because, you know, people still complain of the coverage in downhill, but it's, it's a savagely difficult and expensive thing to cover. So we we were moving downhill in in the way to make it better to cover to grow the fan base to make it just generally a better thing and that obviously I saw a divorce in that from actual mountain biking right um, because you were making this kind of superhero sport that isn't maybe what me yeah. and you did on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon on our normal mountain bikes and when you looked at other disciplines you looked at uh, road you had sportif for Grand Fondo that kind of mass participation element to road. In cross-country, they were able to do that as cross-country because you had the marathon sort of formats, those longer-distance participatory formats sitting behind them. But downhill didn't have anything. And so people attracted to that kind of more gravity, more aggressive style of mountain biking didn't really have anything that captured them. And enduro at the time was emerging in the continent. So I started a working group to look if we could create this participation element to the gravity department, which I was managing at the time. And uh, off we went. That that was the that was the formation of kind of formalized enduro, if you like. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really cool. But at the same time, so you're saying it was more participatory, but but the enduro World Series, I mean, it's a very organized thing now. I mean, this is seven years later, but and there are obviously there's there's kind of different tracks in that as well, where you can participate, but then you also have the pros. So how how did that forming this formal organization the EWS how did that sort of fit with your idea of of making a sport that more people could participate in great question so I guess there's two parts to the answer you've got one where the 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 very core ethos of the whole sport is in that pro and am shared trail shared experience model of participatory sport that we talked about so Mm -hmm. exactly you know that the new structure we launched this year with the ews 80 and 100 which is 80 percent 100 percent of the course and the ews which is qualify for sort of pro level racing the the ethos that 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 existed 10 years ago still exists now in that not elite level sport everyone can come and do it at a certain level so that's one part i guess to the answer the other part is we've had 10 years of growth and development maturation and big element of that has been in, in the in the technology the the bikes that are now being ridden race developed uh, are completely different to those 10 years ago because there's been a spotlight on on the trail bike which used to be this frankenstein mashup of cross country and downhill and whatever kind of worked went in that middle ground and that's what we all rode as trail bikes they've now got the spotlight on them so they've allowed us and everyone else to do huge amounts more than you used to be able to do which has allowed us to elevate the level of sport and the riders have grown with that too so You've got a very high-level professional sport, but with that ethos of participation. Yeah, very cool to see those two blended. 
So last year, uh, the Enduro World Series announced a partnership with the UCI. So how did this first season of that partnership go? Really, really, really well and seamless, for want of a better word, really. And it, and it's and I guess it's it's funny when you're in something and then you you know when you're in a bubble and then you see things from outside the bubble that they're quite different. The UCI relationship and agreement has been has been bubbling away in the background for four or five years. We we always spoke. They've had a huge number of administrative changes, political changes, and we've obviously had a huge exponential growth at the same time. So we always stayed in touch, and when the times were right and when agreements worked, we, we kind of came together and formalised it. So it wasn't new for us, but I think from the outside, it seemed like this massive new thing, right? But it was actually talked about and planned for for a number of years. So it's been great. It's been excellent. I think it's given the sport a legitimacy that it, that it needed. Uh, it's allowed us to work more closely with some national federations, which, again is needed on a national level for legitimizing sport, club, coach development, so on and so forth. Commissaire development, neutrality in the rule decisions, everything. It's been really good. Yeah, very cool. So this year, the EWS held its first race at Zermatt, Switzerland, and it looked it looked amazing on the screen. How did it go hosting an event there for the first time? Is that difficult, sort of bringing the event to a new venue? Yeah, so first years are always challenging. What I loved about Zermatt was it kind of took the sport back a few years because we've been working on on making liaisons which are the bits between the special stages a bit more compact a bit more action you know we've seen the race times and results get tighter and tighter because of that we've learned what riders like and don't like and we're able to now kind of give them more of what they like and less of what they don't like and what works from a racing and spectating angle but Zermatt was a kind of a journey back a few years to these big high mountain races that we we would maybe have held at the start of our formation and uh, it was it was fun it was yeah it was big wild pretty inspiring scenery i guess on all on all yeah. sort of on all sides yeah very cool so with four different continental series and all the qualifiers the trophy of nations and then the main event how many races are you managing each year <laughs> a lot <laughs> I mean, yeah, so it depends what you mean by managing. Obviously, the, the, the management level at a World Series or a Trophy Nations event is, is 100% hands-on. You know, we bring a large number of staff and services to those events. Everything is planned to the, the nth degree. And as you drop down those tiers, we have less and less involvement. And, you know, there's more and more local management and to the point where qualifiers are entirely regional events, which we only ask for certain standards to be kept and maintained. But if you look at the calendar, it's now, I think in 2019, we had 79 events in 24 countries. Wow, that's incredible. Did you ever think that it would it would grow so quickly and reach so many different places? No, I didn't really. I mean, the great thing with the format of Enduro is it does it is malleable, and so it can fit in terrain that maybe wouldn't suit downhill or, or other styles of racing. You know, you, you've seen that with all these different creative takes on the on the discipline and all these different parts of the world so it does travel well as a sport if that makes sense yeah but i think it's just captured a lot of people's imaginations and we've worked really hard to put the structures in place as quickly as possible so that people can kind of find their level upskill whether they're racers or organizers or or, or sponsors or, or whoever and with those structures allows that kind of accelerated learning path really we're sort of passing knowledge down receiving feedback from people on the ground upwards. So, no, I didn't see it happening so quickly, but um, it was kind of planned for, I guess, maybe just not as quickly as it was, <laughs> not as quickly 
that's all. Yeah. I mean, are there venues and different organizations that are, you know, kind of begging you to host an event or to allow them to put on one of the qualifiers of the Continental Series? I mean, it seems like at this point, you can kind of take your pick of, of where you're having those events. Yeah, absolutely. No, we, we do have a, we do kind of work two to three years out now on World Series venue selection. So what you'll see in 2021 calendar, 2022 calendar is kind of being decided now as we speak, really, literally this week. The idea that we have a, a huge list of venues to pick from is, is in some ways true, but also a large part of that, that tiered structure of qualifiers and continentals is that we can bring events in and then kind of upskill them on the way through. So there's space for more events at those lower levels. It's rare that we would engage with a new group entirely out with our sphere right at the very highest level straight away. Uh, it happens, yeah. but it's rare. So, yeah, we've got a lot of venues, we've got a lot of countries, um, but we're, we're just trying to make everyone deliver as best as they can with what they have and be as accommodating as possible. Yeah. So one of the newest announcements from the Enduro World Series is something called EWS Travel. So tell us a little bit about that and what sort of prompted that new idea yeah it's 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 a great one i mean it's so it's actually uh, we work in combination with a really well respected travel operator highlands and islands who are also a scottish company just just like us based only a few hours up the road from here they organize kind of international travel but travel's always been a, a really central part to what we do we you know even in our second year back in 2014 we we, we took everyone to chile for the first time into south america and you know, we've been out to Tasmania, to Madeira, to all these really kind of quite aspirational destinations and, and made people recognize in some ways that the mountain biking does happen in all these different parts and these amazing communities. So travel and the idea of travel is really ingrained in what we what we do. The, the, the EWS travel part has been a really nice evolution because it, it's allowed us with Highlands and Islands to bring people to the venues when the race isn't on, when it's quieter, when they can explore sort of more trails out with that area see all the great things that the World Series has been, some of the legacy trails that were built for the event and all the other touch points and all the, maybe the people that were, were involved in some ways. So it's it's purely about holiday and not about racing, but with all that rich kind of inclusive elements that we've brought from the event perspective. And on our side, it also allows us to kind of work with venues in the longer term as well, because it's these things take huge amounts of passion and hours and energy to put on. And it's sometimes it's a shame to kind of on the the podium, you know, champagne court goes, everyone's happy, hugs, and then maybe see you next year, maybe not, depending on where it is. This gives us the opportunity to keep working with those communities and keep them, uh, you know, keep the spotlight on them, keep bringing people there, seeing the great riding that they have and the experiences they can offer. So it's yeah. it's a really cool thing. Yeah, and it's cool to see sort of the whole race series reaching down to include everyone, right? So, you know, you have the pros, obviously, and then you have the EWS 80 and 100. And then it seems like EWS travel is for, I mean, it's for anybody, you know, whether you want to race or not, anybody can go and experience that in, you know, a totally competition-free environment. Exactly, right? Like we want to, our our racers want to race on the best trails, but that's not unique. Everyone wants to ride the best trails. So this is a way of people that Mm -hmm. aren't Racers or racing are really interested in that, but still mountain bikers, just like all of us, to go and go to the same venues and experience the same the same things. Yeah. Well, you mentioned giving back to some of these communities where EWS events take place. Tell us a little bit about some of the trail work and trail maintenance that you're doing, and especially your relationship with soil searching. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, 
as a whole industry, but it, you know, especially as a as a mountain bike race series, which is what we are. Nothing happens without trails to ride on. I mean, it's as simple as that. And especially events, they can put, especially you know when we've experienced some bad weather in the past, they can put a lot of impact onto a trail network over a very short space of time. So I think we have a position of responsibility to at least do our best to say, you know, sustainable management of trail networks is really important. And, you know, although we maybe can't do everything, we do as much as we can to at least make that a part of the discussion so that it sort of becomes more ingrained in our culture of these trails don't exist, you know, out of nowhere and they don't look after themselves. And just that responsible culture, really, a responsible outdoor code in many in many ways, looking after the environment that we all want to enjoy in our in our spare time. So with Soil Searching, we've hosted a number of dig days, uh, uh, post-event, you know, again, sort of involving the community or the main trail builders that, that built the trail. They've done a great job of, of sort of bringing key people together and involving some volunteers in, in sort of patching up areas of trail or in some places we've actually built new section trail, nothing to do with our event. But with the idea of just having a discussion around trail building. In other places, we've We've tried to assist with trail associations and sort of give them the best models that we've learned from other parts of the world. So, okay, there's a growing trail network here. How's it funded? How's it managed? How's it maintained? Well, we travel around the world. We see a million and one different ways of skinning the same cat. So we can pass that information across in, in those regards. And then when it comes to straight up simple funding, we, we have a trail of the year award, which uh, is part of soil searching. So one stage, one trail from every race is selected and then voted by the riders at the end of the year as the best one and the trail builders themselves get awarded a, a prize and the idea there was that the, the not just the racers stand on the podium but the trail builders also are included in this so they get a, they get a trophy at the end of the year which comes with a cash prize to be donated to a trail charity of their choice and that can go anywhere so it's a really cool thing was in Tasmania when they won it the first year they said well you know what our trail network's government funded we don't need the money um, there's this really cool wheelchair access, um, this sort of like adaptive cycling access uh, trail trail charity over on the west coast of Australia, over by Perth. They're really looking for funding, so they they sort of donated their prize, which we donated to them. To, it's, it's just fantastic. <laughs> so yeah, loads of stuff, but really the whole thing's just around making it part of the conversation, you know. Yeah, I imagine too. Over time, by hosting these events, a lot of trail networks are expanded and built. What are some sort of examples of, of trail systems that have really been improved after the EWS started uh, using the trails? Yeah, lots. I mean, it's really interesting because we, whether it's from a sort of showcase of something new at a venue to give it extra excitement on event weekend, or it's a need for a trail network to put something in place to actually be able to host the event. It's really uncommon, I don't think it's ever happened, that we've gone somewhere and new trail hasn't been built or, in cases of Finale or Aensa in Spain, where they've not you know, sort of recommissioned old trail up to the modern-day standard to bring mm-hmm. into the network. And the other cool thing we, we quite often see is that illegal trails that may have been built by locals have been sanctioned and adopted into trail networks officially right. because we want them for the event, but we would never run an international event on an illegal unsanctioned trail so it often puts the pressure on local government to actually engage with the community in that regard so it's it's really normal that we would leave an area with a larger trail network or at least a trail network that's been a bit updated you know yeah that's really cool so next year in 2020 we will see the first enduro world series e-bike races 
Can you talk a little bit about what led you and the board to consider taking on this new genre of mountain bike racing? Uh, yeah, well, that should be a podcast in its own its own right. I think. <laughs> <laughs> How do we distill that into a few minutes? So, I mean, we all know that e-bikes are, are here; they're a large part of our, our future. I know that that's a, a, a pretty uh, inflammatory topic. Personally, I ride an e-bike a lot. You know, my, my my wife rides an e-bike a lot. A lot of the staff in the EWS ride e-bikes all the time. It depends, kind of. I think a lot of how much exposure you've had to them. But uh, I think when yeah. you use them to ride, and when you use them to ride in certain ways, you realise just the potential that they offer. Yeah. So you know, especially Fred Glow, one of our board members based in the south of France, which has been far ahead of the global curve in terms of mountain bike e-biking. He's for a number of years said, "Look, this is this is." going to allow us to do a whole load of cool stuff and this is going to bring in so many new people and this is going to be a really nice part of the sport so we actually hosted a test event over a year ago and uh, now in finale to see kind of how it would work in a racing enduro format perspective to really kind of educate us and some of the kind of industry members and racers that we'd invited along it was quite a closed sort of 50 people ish event where it was very much just feedback driven we all sat down for dinner after and said how was that and what did we learn so it's been in our it's been in our world for quite a while. At the same time, there's obviously this huge global fight around trail access. Will e-bikes damage trail access for mountain bikers? Will it do the opposite? And then in, in Europe and especially around France, there's been this big fight between the motorcycle federations and the mountain bike cycling federations, so FIM versus UCI, so on and so forth. And is is e-bike a motorbiker? Is it not? And and ultimately, whatever your views on e-bikes, as we talk about e-bikes, which is sort of pedal assist or pedalex, as they can be called too, if they're ever viewed as a motorbike, it will crush all mountain bike cycling industry development in the next sort of you know fifteen to twenty years. So they they very much need to be seen as bikes because they are bikes. They are bikes mm-hmm. that we would ride just with an electric assist. So there was very much a need with the UCI and their World Championships in Montsin and to. To say, you know what, no, no, e-bikes are bikes and therefore they need to be in our family. Mm-hmm. And we agreed with that and worked with those guys to expand our, our UCI agreement to manage e-bike enduro so that we can make sure that we can do our best to see e-bikes grow in the way that we would want them to grow as mountain bikers. And, you know, mm-hmm. ultimately our group and then our wider group of organisers and, you know, industry representatives and and. and trail builders and everybody else we don't think there's a better group of people that can kind of have that input and steer as to where your bikes go in the future so that's why we moved into e-bike as quickly as we have because we really see it as a as a mountain bike discipline of the of the future mm. and it needs yeah. such careful management and the nuance needs so carefully thought about right now yeah. to avoid future problems in you know a decade to two decades but uh that's where we're at in terms of format enduro format multiple loops and um, we're going to bring climbing into the mix, which we've never been able to do with a normal bike because of the yeah. simple physical constraints of a human being. So technical climbing, <laughs> technical challenges, descending. We're going to try and develop the courses so that the motor component isn't really a part of the time sections, but that the motor okay. provides that assistance, electrical assistance provides more single track, less fire roads, less chairlift, less shuttles, less shuttles, all that kind of stuff. So more of a... Yeah. Full single track experience in a day, really. Right. One of the things that I, I was wondering about is, I mean, do you think an e-bike would actually give you an advantage on a lot of courses? I mean, in an enduro race, the liaison stages obviously aren't timed, and that's where most of the climbing happens. So do you think if riders had a choice, 
would they choose e-bikes? Would there be an advantage even on a lot of the courses? In current format, no. And that's why we never just put an e-bike category into our events. But they weren't allowed. These aren't going to be e-bike categories at EWS events. These are going to be separate courses designed for e-bike, which is going to have more single track trail and bring the liaison more into the race in terms of its experience. So rather than just going from the bottom to the top in the most efficient possible manner, because that's all your legs can do, in this sense, with e-bike, we're going to try and bring in more of a, a journey element to that part of the, the competition. Yeah. Well, in motorcycle racing, I mean, there are events designed, you know, just pure hill climb events that are very technical and, and challenging in that way. Is that sort of where you see e-bikes going at some point? Where we Will we see just like pure hill climb races? I would imagine. You know, I think it's, uh, I mean, there'll be, there'll be pure hill climb components to, to our races as of next year, for sure. In terms of will there just be hill climb races, I, I don't see why not. I think a lot of people at the moment see it as road cycling, cross country, downhill, enduro and e-bike, you know, and gravel. But actually, I think e-bike is just a whole other mirror of all of those existing disciplines and probably other ones too. You know, so this, this you know, we're, we're working an e-bike enduro I think there'll be an e-bike cross-country marathon. I think there'll be. I don't think there'll be an e-bike downhill. I think that's one discipline that's safe from from that development. But uh, you know, I think there'll be hill climbs. Yes, I think there'll be all sorts of other disciplines that will come out of this 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 world. Yeah, interesting. So the Enduro World Series Trophy of Nations this season seemed to be a real hit with riders and fans too. So can we expect to see more of this three-rider team format or other? kind of similar format mix-ups for the next season? From us, n- no. We're going to keep it just at the Trophy of, of Nations. It was it was fantastic. It was a real highlight of the year, and I think it took it to happen for people to understand what, what we were trying to do there. Um, it was really hard to communicate in advance, and, and understandably, a lot of people were like, what, team racing and enduro? How's that going to work? And uh, to be honest, up until five minutes before the race, I was like, is this going to work? But it worked really well, so that was good. And you know, bringing a team dynamic into what is often or really is an individual sport, mountain biking when you're competing, was, was really fun. And I think having it for us as a one-off in the year is great. I don't think we would do it more in other places because I, I don't think it's, I think it would take the edge and the shine off that. But I have heard of other organisers wanting to organise events t- of that format in their own regions for, you know, bringing riders together. So that is really cool. So I would imagine we'll see more team racing because people have seen that it's such a cool thing to do. We won't do any more than just that one race in the year. Okay, cool. So what advice would you give to aspiring enduro racers who want to sign up for EWS qualifier or one of these 8100 events? Wow, uh, good question. Ride, you ride your bike as much as you can in as many different environments, trail types, and weather as possible. I would yeah. say the one thing that makes a really good enduro racer at the top end is someone who's incredibly well prepared for every single eventuality. Mm-hmm. And we definitely see it where riders come over from other disciplines and maybe, you know, everything's far more controlled. They definitely sort of struggle to adapt. Or riders who only ever race locally or ride locally, you know, to their sort of where they live. And then, you know, they go and they, they join us and they travel to this completely bizarre uh, soil type or or trail style or whatever or altitude or heat or whatever and they and they fall apart so i think making yourself robust is the single 
most important attribute for a successful yeah. enduro racer for sure and then yeah. you know if you can follow our structure the, the structure of events are there to give organizers a you know a way up but also for for racers so you go in at a qualifier event do well step up to the continental continental level events build your experience race against people of, of your level and then obviously the ultimate step is to that that world series level event yeah yeah, it sounds like a big part of it is just just having confidence, you know, getting to that level in your riding where you are confident that you can handle whatever the course throws at you. And, and that's re- really, I guess, what Enduro is all about. Yeah, exactly, right? If your bike breaks, you know how to fix it. If you get to a bit of trail, you know, you know how to ride it. If the weather happens, you've got the right the weather changes, you've got the right stuff to kind of keep yourself warm and dry or, or whatever it is or hydrated. So, yeah, yeah, you're totally right, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit then about the gear. What what elements make the perfect mountain bike for one of your races? It's been amazing watching the evolution since 2013. You know, it used to be really regular at the finish line of stages. You would see bikes coming down with derailers hanging off or flat tires or <laughs> wheels that were damaged or, what you know, a, a, a multitude of, of mechanical sins. But they've become so reliable now. It's really amazing to see how few mechanicals uh, are experienced by riders now in, in events in some of the hardest terrain in the world so i think definitely you know reliable choice of components is is a big one they're, they're they're out there now for sure when we see riders turn up with you know lighter tires or lighter wheels because they go oh wait it's all about weight then you know they might not make it to the finish line sometimes so mm-hmm. i think something that's that's designed to be really durable that's um, really efficient I remember talking to an engineer about five years ago for the bike brands. He said the one word that we're really working on is efficiency. It's not just about weight. It's not just about this or that. It's about the efficiency of the whole thing. I mean, you see that a lot with the seat angle change and everything. You know, people are now bringing pedaling efficiency into overall bike design. It's not just about head angle and stability on descents. So, yeah, I think a bike that's efficient, that's comfortable, that fits you well, that's going to last you a long time. That, that makes a perfect bike. Yeah, that's interesting too, because a few years ago, we first started seeing this Enduro label applied to bikes, and then it was components. You know, people would say this is an Enduro wheel set or an Enduro tire. And at the time, it kind of seemed like maybe that was kind of a marketing gimmick or something like that. But I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that's a real thing. I mean, these parts are designed to stand up to that kind of abuse and they've been sort of optimized, you know, to have that right balance between efficiency and durability. And yeah, it sounds like, sounds like it's, it's working. I mean, if the bikes are holding up better. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. I think there was definitely that, that kind of, uh, the, that era where some of it felt, you know, quite marketing heavy, but, but underneath it all, there was, there was a genuine shift. It, it, you only have to look back those years to see that, that shift in technological development and you know what we what we did just like i was saying about e-bikes a minute ago is people see all these different bikes and then an e-bike people used to see you know bikes that just that was your trail bike whatever you'd call it all mountain bike but actually there's different stages within that right so you know a bike that can really take a bike park versus you know the alps versus maybe something flatter in your local trail system that is an enduro bike you know one one 150 160 170 mil mostly 29 or now bit heavier pretty hard to break you can travel around the world with an enduro bike and not really come up up against anything you couldn't ride because of your equipment which is really cool yeah. might not be the most it might not be the fastest thing around a, a kind of cross-country circuit but you're going to be able to at least ride it you know right 
Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, even those who don't race enduro, I mean, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for a bike that can handle sort of whatever they find themselves getting into. Exactly, right? There's nothing worse than working Monday to Friday and then you get out on a Saturday on your bike and the first thing that happens is it breaks and then you have to walk, walk <laughs> right. home back to your car. No, totally. You know, that, that's exactly right. It's what, it's what we all want to ride because the majority of people just want a bike that they can have fun on and that, that right. lasts a long time, right? Yeah. So when you're not traveling to scout or manage races, where are some of your favorite places to ride? I would say at home. <laughs> and that's just because... We live in the Tweed Valley in the south of Scotland, and there's a huge amount of trail riding here of all sorts, great community, um, and I don't get to ride here often enough because I'm traveling so much. So I'd say this is absolutely my favorite place to, to ride. Yeah, that's that's really cool and really interesting too. I mean, we ask this question of a lot of people, and that's kind of the typical answer is local trails, no matter where you are. Um, there's just something about riding trails you're familiar with and where it's easy to do and you're not getting all stressed out trying to get to the trailhead so yeah that's that's cool to hear yeah i think you know i think travel is really important you know i think in terms of your experience and how it kind of affects your your view and what it brings to kind of cultures and communities but yeah there's no place like home that's for sure you know (laughs) yeah so finally, you know, we've seen several downhill mountain bikers move to the EWS after recovering from injuries, and it sounds like more planning to do so in 2020. So does enduro racing offer a different level of risk, or is there maybe a little bit more of the ability to manage safety than downhill? Yes, and uh, it, it, it does. The Downhill now in its natural evolution, you know, is, is arguably all those riders at the top are just insanely talented individuals. Mm-hmm. The, the, the bikes they're riding are insanely capable pieces of, of, uh, of technology. And, and, and sometimes the defining factor is who takes more risk, I guess. But that's, that's what that sport is to some extent. So yeah, I mean you're 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 taking a three minute course, and you know you're talking about tenths of seconds. In enduro, you're out there. You know some of our races as a day last seven hours. You know on average they'll maybe around sort of five to five and a half hour mark. But even then, that's a lot of time on your bike. And in that time, everyone makes mistakes, and everyone has mm-hmm. highs, and everyone has lows, and everyone goes really fast through a section, and everyone goes really slow and falls off through another section. So you know there's always a way of mitigating risk you don't need you know often when you you look at a a trail with a super high risk rock garden line that you could gap or whatever in a downhill race and this isn't anything against downhill i love downhill to bits but that's what you that's what you have to do to be in the competition that's what makes Mm -hmm. it so good but enduro you typically look at that and think well as an overall piece of this 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 competition that risk is is too high for the potential reward i could gain that three tenths of a second by just pedaling a bit harder up that next bit of fire road or something so there is space to manage risk and you do see riders maybe from downhill who were less consistent far more consistent in enduro i think because they're able to make they're super talented individuals but they're able to make those mistakes and balance them um with with other moments of genius mm-hmm. so yeah there is there is less of a forced risk in enduro for sure but saying that, the level of racing now in, in enduro has gone so high. This year, something happened. I don't know what was in the, you know, it just, it, it's really jumped up. And, you know, we're seeing races down to second. So 
of course, they're both risk. There's there's risk in both disciplines, of course. Right. But I think there's definitely, as your question puts it, there's more of an ability to manage that risk. So some of the things, like you mentioned, enduro obviously does have some safety concerns as well. One of the things that's different from downhill is on-site racing, where downhill, it seems like the courses are a little more controlled. People are able to sort of check them out more in advance. But the Enduro World Series has been implementing sort of more safety features over the years. So can you talk a little bit about that, how sort of safety has evolved in Enduro over the last several seasons? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a huge priority of ours. We, we'd spent three years doing a, a pretty large medical study that we released in the middle of this season that was, that was geared towards making sure that any safety decision that we make is, is actually informed and based on sort of scientific evidence rather than just kind of what we think because safety is such an emotional topic that it's easy to go a bit wayward sometimes in what's what feels safe versus what actually is safe or what what is high risk and what actually is high risk yeah so we've you know we've been working through a number of different things over the years in terms of safety one of one of the things i think probably the biggest rule that would would reflect your question is in in downhill obviously you have a course it's quite short you do that as many times as you want in the training window and then you race it. So you would typically enter that race environment knowing every single inch of the trail or you should do. Right. You know exactly the lines you can do, where you break, where you don't break, how things feel, how fast you can go. In Enduro, what we've done, we used to training used to be quite open for us in the early years as things were developing and riders were as they were getting fitter and fitter and more more physically prepared, they were doing far more in a build up to an event than I ever thought possible they yeah. were yeah, like just incredible to the point where they were starting to take those lines because they were able to practice them quite a lot mm-hmm. so firstly i thought well okay blind racing is sounds very dangerous and is you know is can be quite dangerous but also you don't typically take high risk lines in blind racing because you don't know they're there so okay so let's find a middle ground there the other one was um the actual impact on the on on, on, the, on the trail so if you're over if you're kind of going over and over and over a section obviously that's loads and loads and loads and loads of bike tires going over that one piece of dirt and damaging the trail especially in very dry very wet weather so we implemented a one run maximum training rule last year which we didn't do a few years ago because we didn't actually have the manpower on site to manage it a good rules a good rule is a rule that you can actually implement and control so if we'd done it you know four years ago we would never have had the ability to uh, make sure that people were only doing one run and pretty much now we're confident that's happening. And so that one run rule means that people go out and they get to see stuff, but perhaps, you know, between Sam Hill going out and doing his one training run to when he goes and races on the Sunday, there may have been a thousand passes of that trail, 500 riders, one training run, one race run. So he doesn't really know exactly what he's going to come up against in his race. He knows roughly, he knows where to go and where to try hard and where to recover. But he doesn't know exactly, you know, what what to do all the time. So that 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 manages the risk and the danger component, and then obviously, it manages the the damage on the trail too. And the really cool thing with that rule as yeah. well is um, it balances the pro and am sort of fairness, if you like. You know, it doesn't matter how many team resources you have available to you. You can only do one run, just like the guy who paid his own way there and and had his own had his own go. So. I guess that's our single biggest uh, evolution that uh, probably responds to your 
your question really. Safety-wise elsewhere, it's just always been a priority. So the more our event budgets go up, the more we're able to do. Um, we've implemented concussion regulations. Uh, we're doing what we can in that world. We're just trying to make it okay for riders to you know, recognize sort of head injury symptoms, try and help educate organizers, try and organize, uh, try and help educate uh, team managers and team staff you know, to, to spot stuff because they spend more time with riders than anybody else. And just again, like trail building uh, earlier in the podcast, um, just make it part of the conversation. Yeah, that's that's interesting that you say people are going to ride, you know, not knowing what's on the course. I imagine that makes them ride much more alertly and carefully because you don't know what's around every corner. I mean, you may have an idea, but but you don't know. And so, yeah, hopefully people are sort of checking themselves. Was there anything that surprised you from that medical study? Any findings that, that surprised you, you know, either good or bad, that, that people weren't being as injured as often as you thought, or were there certain types of injuries that sort of surprised you were coming out of this? Most of it was just really nice evidence for what you kind of think. But the one the one surprise, and I guess because it's such a discussed topic, was that head injury is, A, the severity of head injury experienced in the sport is, is low, and the actual chance of getting a head injury is low. Yeah. So the those numbers were really, really interesting. That doesn't mean that it's not shouldn't still be a focus of everybody. But it was nice to see that actually we're not dealing with a sort of American football esque kind of oh dear, right? We do have a you know, we do have a problem. All the evidence point towards the fact that we're 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 dealing with something that's, you know, in the in the minority. So that was that was a that was a good learning. The other interesting thing, I guess, wet races more people fall off, people think, you know, and often people are falling off all the time saying, this is really dangerous, and actually quite yeah. often the speed is very low and it's wet, ah. so the actual severity of injury is very low. That's and speed is the single biggest factor to bad injury versus sort of minor injury. So when people think things are very dangerous and people are falling off all over the place, it's quite often safer. We see less injury. You know, we can go through these events with hundreds of people and think there was almost you know, zero injury recorded. So that was interesting. And, and yeah. also, like to your point about the blind racing, it flagged up that a lot of our injury happens on easy sections of trail. And, you know, that arguably comes down to what we probably think is people switching off at that point. Oh, this is easy. Yeah. And then really engaging <laughs> a technical section and managing the risk, as we talked about in this conversation too. And then, oh, this is easy. I'll just go really fast here. And then, boom, have an accident. Yeah, that's sort of counterintuitive that the more technical sections are actually good for the riders that keep them safer because they're more alert they're gonna slow down a little bit and so yeah maybe that plays into course design a little bit if they're slower yes exactly so high speed technical or sections of trail that allow people to go really quick on that maybe their ability level wouldn't allow them or shouldn't allow them to do they're the kind of most um most dangerous when you see these super terrifying sections they're quite often if they're slow and they're managed they can be relatively safe yeah very cool well chris thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us uh, i know i learned a ton about the enduro world series and it's really cool to see how your organization has sort of helped grow and evolve the sport so thank you oh thanks for having me so you can find out more about the Enduro World Series online at EnduroWorldSeries.com. And you can also find out about some of the other programs like EWS Travel and the 8100 races. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.